Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the HPO podcast. Today I'm wrapping up the Dietitian's Dilemma series with my guest co-host Michelle Hearn. Michelle and I are joined by ultramarathon, or I should probably say ultra, ultra marathon athlete at this point, Mike McKnight. I have known Mike for years. We became friends before Mike got into ultramarathons, so it has been quite a treat for me to see him dabble in the sport at first, but ultimately find his niche within it. Mike's sweet spot is long ultramarathons that often extend past 200 miles. This usually means Mike is out on course for days and nights with little to no sleep. Hearing about his process and how it differs from other endurance events is fascinating. Mike doesn't just do these 200 plus mile races either. He often wins them. In fact, there's a three-part 200 plus mile series called the Triple Crown of 200s, where the goal is to make it through all these three races of 200 plus miles, which are only separated by a few weeks. Mike has won all of them, set course records there at them, and won the Triple Crown, which is essentially just a cumulative time across all three of those races. And he's done that on two different occasions. Mike found his way towards a low-carbohydrate diet fairly early in his ultramarathon journey. I really like talking to Mike about this topic because with the type of events he's doing, I believe low-carb makes about as much sense as possible. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Mike. If you want to hear more about him and his approach, you can also check out episodes that I've recorded with him previously. Those are episodes 186, where we did more of an introduction to Mike as a person, his training, his diet, all that stuff. And then episode 218, where we did a dive into one of his projects that he did during the whole COVID pandemic when races were canceled. And he actually set out to run 100 miles on zero calories and just see what that was like. Uh, Pretty fascinating uh, end of one experiment, if you ask me. So check those out if you're interested in hearing more about Mike. But thanks for tuning in for the final episode of our Dietitian's Dilemma series with Michelle Hearn, myself, and Mike McKnight. If you enjoyed this podcast and wish to support either monetarily or by sharing, liking, and subscribing, please head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO for options, which include joining my Patreon page, making a quick one-time donation, which includes options to avoid the need of joining a third-party platform, or subscribing to HPO on your favorite podcast listening or viewing platform. You can also support HPO through the show sponsors. Details on all the discounts and promotions from HPO show sponsors can be found at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. That link is in the show notes. All right, Mike, um, I'm actually surprised you're awake right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to welcome you into what is going to likely be our final episode of the Dietitian's Dilemma series where... Uh, I brought in Michelle as a co-host. This will be number seven, if I'm not mistaken. And we've gone through some of the topics in her book, Dietitian's Dilemma, with folks that we thought would be good people to chat with about kind of just the various topics that she covered in that. And it's gone from things just like uh, the psychology of eating and food and how that impacts that sort of stuff to like what we're going to talk to you about today, which is kind of the performance end of things and how 
there's possibly like an application for a low carb ketogenic diet in, in sports and where those may be fit and how you specifically have kind of leveraged that side of things in your own training and racing. Perfect. But to let our listeners in on a little bit that aren't familiar with you, although I'm sure a lot of them probably will be, and you've been on the show before. So the ones that have listened to a lot of the episodes or all the episodes will be familiar with you. Uh, You've become kind of the guy that is getting recognized as the 200 mile plus man, I think, where uh, we've seen uh, throughout my ultra marathon running career, uh, we've seen this like growth, I would say in the last probably two to three years where people are getting more and more interested both at the participation level, as well as the spectating level of these races that go beyond the hundred mile distance and venture into 200 plus mile runs. And since that's gotten popular, it seems like every time one of those happens, at least the ones that are well-known, your name pops up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've gotten lucky, I guess. (laughs) What got you interested in going kind of a little further than the average ultra runner? Yeah. So, I mean, I first heard of the 200 mile distance in 2016, um, which was about four years after I started ultra running. And at that point I I didn't even know anything over a hundred miles existed. So it kind of caught my attention when I heard about it. And I had a good buddy at the time who was doing what was at the time, the double crown of 200s, which was Tahoe 200 and Bigfoot 200 at the time there wasn't a Moab 200. And so he and I were chatting, I was asking about his recovery, asking him about the experience, and he had nothing but positive things to say about the distance and the experience. So um, it was in 2017, I signed up for my first 200 mile distance and kind of went all in and um, enjoyed the the suffering, enjoyed the the multi-day aspect. And so I ended up signing up for all three 200s that year. And um, just kind of have fallen in love with the distance ever since it's, it's a lot more than running from what I've seen. It's, it's a lot of, it's a lot more strategy. It's a lot more focusing on the sleep deprivation. There's just a lot more to it, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Even more variables and, and to give you a little more credit than you gave yourself, those 200s, 300s in a year, they're not spread out like every three to four months, they're congested basically into the fall, early winter timeline. So like you just did the first one now and you're going to be back on another starting line looking to go over 200 miles in a few weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, today's Friday, the 20th and the next one starts three weeks from today. Mm-hmm. So recover recovery and how you manage the, just the impact of one has to be, you have to be considering some of this other stuff versus I think a lot of times with racing at, at your level anyway, or at the level of folks who are winning these type of events a lot of times it's, well, I'm going to destroy myself and worry about the aftermath in the months, the months following where you don't really have that luxury when you're doing the triple crown, the way it's set up currently. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, the thing I've learned is that 200 mile races, they, they, um, they, they, they fatigue the hell out of you. It's so tiring. Um, you feel like you're trying to catch up on sleep for, for weeks, for months after you're finished. Um, so, so from that aspect, it's, it's definitely going to work you. Uh, but from a physical standpoint, I find that you can recover so much quicker from a 200 because you're not running as fast. Um, there's a lot more strategic hiking. Um, you're just going at a lot slower pace than you would say like a Western States or a desert solstice. So, so, I mean, there's some like 
there's some variables to consider with that. Like it, it's definitely something to, to think about and explore a little bit more, but I found that, that I recover so much faster from a 200 than I do versus a hundred mile race. Awesome. Before we kind of shift <laughs> over to your nutrition strategy, I want to let Michelle jump in here and ask any questions she has with these like longer ultras because Michelle is a little newer to the sport and has been able to do uh, some, some ultra stuff, but, uh, just like myself, 200 plus is beyond the scope of what, what either of us has done our individually at, at this point in time. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is, this is really fascinating for me. I mean, when I first heard of the hundred mile distance, I was just blown away. Like how could anybody run a hundred miles? So when I heard of 200, I was like, oh my gosh, that has to be something that you camp out overnight or, Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously we'll talk more about your nutrition, but I was just, you know, I remember how sore I was after my six hour race. So it's, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about pace and how, how, when you're going, you know, slower and more strategic, how that can definitely potentially, um, yeah, maybe make you less sore, but yeah, my, my question would be, and I'm sure you're going to talk a little bit about it is just one, like, how do you prepare for that as far as training? Um, and does that look a whole lot different than if you train for like a hundred mile race? And then, yeah, of course, we're all very interested in how you fuel from your nutrition. Cause you and I have certainly talked offline that, you know, the dogma still is that every ultra runner or person going long distance needs a very high carbohydrate diet. Yeah. So, I mean, the training, when I first did my first 200 mile race, um, back in 2017, I changed my training a lot. Um, <clears throat> I did a lot more um, long runs. And when I say long runs, I mean like 50 mile runs in my like monthly training. Um, in retrospect, I feel like that was excess excessive. Um, I don't think that that was really needed. Um, so I've since adapted my training to focus more on sleep deprivation. Um, I feel like, and this is going to sound silly, but like hundred to 200 miles, like if you can run a hundred mile race, then you can honestly physically run a 200 mile race. Um, the difference is trying to figure out the sleep deprivation aspect of it, because <clears throat> there's a lot of good racers who like start out doing super well and they're going super hard and then they get to that second night. And that's when things really start to, to mess with them. They, they start hallucinating. They start um, like falling asleep while they're running. They start death, like the death march. I don't know if you've heard of that term before mm-hmm. or not, but basically you're just walking so slow that like your, your grandparents could probably (laughs) like it's not a fast pace. (laughs) And so that, that comes from not understanding the importance of like figuring out your sleep in these races. So, so the biggest difference that I, the biggest thing that I've implemented in my training is like once or twice a month, I'll do a sleep deprivation training run. So like on a Friday night, I'll go for a run at 10 or 11 PM when the sun's down go run for an hour and a half or two hours and go to bed between one and 2 a.m. And then I'll wake up between five and 6 a.m. and go for another two to three hour run. So just getting used to that, running when it's dark, going to sleep, waking up when it's dark and continuing to run. Um, <clears throat> that's been the biggest thing that I feel that's helped me figure out the, just the, the running on little sleep at these races. So do you sleep during the race then? Do you actually take like an hour or so, or how, how does that work? Cause you know, for me, I just, it's been such a transition from going from a marathon, even to an ultra marathon. You know, the first, um, you know, the only ultra marathon I've done now was a loop course was a six hour course. 
And as I was, you know, doing loops around three hours or so, I saw people like stopping and sitting and I was like, what are we doing? Like, cause in a marathon, <laughs> never stop and sit. Right. And so, and obviously like I wasn't going to stop and sit, but then I, I realized that as you go longer, certainly into the hundred mile, you're going to have to like stop, get some food, whatever. So do you, do you physically stop and I'm guessing sleep some during this? Yeah, I do. Um, but I, I have a unique approach. I sleep quite a bit less than most racers. Um, just on my upbringing, I, I grew up on a dairy farm, so I'm used to operating on little sleep. Um, I, I would wake up at 2 a.m., go milk the cows, go home, get dressed and go to school that day and then be busy until nine or 10 at night and go back to bed. So <clears throat> I was used growing. I was used to sleeping very little and operating on that little sleep as I grew up. So so I, I feel that, um, that's kind of something that has benefited me for the 200 <laughs> mile races. Um, so like, for example, the 200 mile race that I just did, I took two 15 minute naps, um, slept a total of 30 minutes and I finished in 58 hours. So, oh, yeah. so just a little over two days, 30 minutes of sleep where a lot of runners try to aim for an hour to two hours of sleep per night. Um, cause typically you could get two REM cycles in during that window, which, um, you know, if you do it correctly, you can wake up feeling pretty refreshed. Uh, but you know, the, that, that four hours it's, it's counting against you. It's counting against your finish time. So that, that's just the fun part of it. You got to figure out like, <clears throat> cause obviously if you don't sleep, you're going to do a lot worse. Um, I have so many stories I can share with you of runners that I've like, like that were leading the race. And because they chose not to sleep, like they ended up getting fifth or even 10th place. Like they just slowed down so much because they refused to sleep. So that's one of my favorite parts of it, finding the balance of sleeping, but not sleeping too much, getting enough to make you not hallucinate. So, <laughs> yeah. So for me, I, I found that generally between 10 and 30 minutes per 200 mile race is enough to get me the amount of rest that I need to not, to not start hallucinating and, and slow down too much. The, the interesting thing about that, Mike, is I think one of the questions I've gotten more and more about the hundred mile distance is just how do you really practice both the mental and physical aspects of like the end stages of a hundred mile race when in reality and practice, unless I'm doing events leading into another event, I'm really not going to run anywhere near the race distance. You know, we were talking 200 plus miles. It's just taking that to a whole nother level where you're in this situation where someone like yourself had to kind of trial and error that to a degree on the race course. So while you were kind of winning these races on your first round of them, you're also probably taking inventory or data collection and stuff about like, well, what worked and what didn't work so that when you get to the next one, you have a little more of a fine tuned process. And, and now you're at a point where you've done enough of these, where you've probably got a fairly consistent plan where, you know, as long as you don't make a big mistake or something presents itself, you haven't seen before, that's fairly drastic. You, you kind of know what you need to do for you at the individual level. Yeah. I mean, I, I've done Bigfoot three years now, 2017, 2019, 2021. Um, the first year I did Bigfoot, I, I spent hours, um, preparing for that race. Like I took full advantage of all the drop bags, like like um, she has drop bag aid stations and like the drop bags move from like aid station two to aid station A, aid station three to aid station 10. Like there's a lot of strategic planning <clears throat> that could take up a lot of time if you really dive into it. So that first year, like I did all the drop bags, I 
I took the advice of one of my buddies to try to get an hour and a half sleep each night. Um, but like I found out, like in terms of the drop bags, like I didn't use any of my drop bags. So it was just kind of a big waste of time. Um, <clears throat> I didn't use like, like I'd pack like 10 different pairs of shirts, like, like a ridiculous <laughs> amount of shirts. <laughs> and like, I never changed my shirt. So, and, you know, I, I lowered that from 10 to maybe three. Um, and then in terms of like the sleep, like I just found that I would lay in my crew vehicle trying to sleep in that whole hour and a half. Like I slept for like five minutes and then I spelt, spent the other 80 minutes just trying to sleep. So I, I just learned that, um, that planning sleep doesn't work for me. So I essentially like the majority of my naps are on the trail. <clears throat> like I, I don't do it in a vehicle. I don't do it in the sleep stations. I just run. And then once I get around that 48 hour mark, 50 hour mark, or no, sorry, I guess it's more the 36 hour mark. When I get around that mark, I like, I just keep going until I start wandering on and off the trail. And I just know that I need a nap and I'll lay face down on the trail just right then and there and set my alarm for 15 minutes and take a 15 minute dirt nap and then wake up and keep going. And if I need to do that again in a couple hours, I'll do it again. But <clears throat> yeah, I, I found that um, it's very individualized. And for me, it's it's um, just run until you can't run anymore than take a nap and then do it again. <laughs> That's really interesting stuff, Mike. And I want to pivot a little bit into kind of the variable that, uh, that we want to spend the most time discussing, which is your diet and nutrition strategy for this. And I find it interesting, not only because I follow a low carbohydrate diet and when there's other athletes that are having success following that, I want to know like what their process is and, and kind of what their thought is as to why they're doing it versus what they maybe had started out doing, or what's going to be commonly more recommended, uh, within the ultra running or Olympic distance endurance sports. Now, once you get past single day ultra marathons, I don't know that there's really any recommendations at that point. I mean, even the single day ones are, are open to saying moderate carb versus high carb in most cases. Uh, and then they're, they're very clear about the limitations of the research, even with that. Now, when we get past single day and into two, three plus days, I think this is where the door opens up to not only a low carbohydrate diet, but potentially even a strict ketogenic diet in, in a way where we're not looking at it as being like a potential option for someone who moderate carb did not work for, but possibly a preferred route to go based on the amount of logistics and things that you're going to see over that course of time. And the incredibly low intensity that you're going to have to just consistently maintain to be out there that long. Can you talk to us a little bit about what kind of brought you into low carb, how you're structuring your diet now towards like these 200 races versus what you would maybe do if you were doing something like 50 miles or hundred miles, if there's any difference really. Yeah. <clears throat> so what brought me into it? I feel like it's similar for most low carb athletes. Like I, I feel the majority of us who are doing this approach came to it because we were having some kind of issue that we wanted to fix. And so for me, it was, I was always in this cycle of either puking at my races because <clears throat> I had a hard time digesting all the calories that I was intaking, um, or I was just like super low on energy because I decided to not eat as much, um, to not have stomach issues. And then I just didn't have any energy. So <clears throat> I learned about the low carb approach from you, Zach, and then Jeff Browning, um, the, the science and it all made sense. And 
like the basically not needing to eat as much and essentially becoming bonk proof. Um, it just basically seemed like a diet that would fix the issues I was having. So <clears throat> I started doing it in 2017 and, um, you know, I, I may not have been entirely strict that first year. Um, I had a lot of cheat days, <laughs> but, um, but <clears throat> I, I, I could see the difference that it was making with my performance. Um, that happened to be the first year that I did the triple crown at 200s as well. Um, and, you know, the, <clears throat> it was three 200 mile races, 600. Well, one of them was 240. So two, 640 miles in the span of 60 days. Um, and I essentially like had a consistent flow of energy for all three of those races. So, so even though I was cheating a lot, I knew that there was something, um, special about that approach and that it was something that I should explore more. Um, so 2018 is when I like really started to get strict with it. And I really started to like be hundred percent all in no more cheat days, um, and I've seen nothing but, but positives from, from going strict um, in 2018. And so, yeah, I've been doing it for about four years now, about three years strictly. Um, <clears throat> the, the big things that I've seen, and I don't know if you asked this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> um, but the big things that I've noticed, um, so I've done the triple crown of 200s two times now, and this will be my third year. Um, and I usually compare 2019 to 2017. Um, I was low carb for both of them. I was strict for 2019, but I wasn't strict in 2017. So in 2017, I remember like the first three to five days after each race, like I used that as like an excuse, like during the race, when I wanted to quit, I used eating junk as an excuse <laughs> to get me to the finish line. And so like, I was like, okay, if you finish this race, you can have a shake from Dairy Queen. You can have some fried cheese curds from A&W. So like the first two days was like full of sugar, full of deep fried crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I did that pretty consistently after each race. Um, and I found that like, <clears throat> I maybe ran two times between each of those races just because I was so swollen. I was so tight and I just had so many issues that I didn't want to, um, make worse in prep for the next race. <clears throat> and then in 2019, I was like, I understood more like, you know, you should probably be the most strict that you're going to be like those three days right after a race to help reduce the inflammation and to help re to, to help you recover faster. So, so I, I was a lot stricter. I, I stuck to the red meat. I stuck to the low carb, um, and I found that between each of those races, I, I was back to running three or four days after the race was over. Um, I felt pretty, pretty good. I wasn't tight. I wasn't swollen. And I, I improved my combined time that year um, by just over 40 hours. And so like the times that I finished in 2019 versus 2017 um, was pretty drastic. So <clears throat> So the, the biggest thing that I learned is like the importance of, of being strictest when you're like closest to your race um, to help reduce that inflammation and to help you recover faster. Um, so, yeah, so I don't remember the majority of the questions that you asked <laughs> for, for this section. I don't know if I covered any of it. Um, were you asking about like the foods and stuff that I eat during the race? 
Yeah, I just, I'm curious if you do anything differently, both in your day-to-day nutrition leading into the 200s versus what you would maybe do for like a 50 miler or a hundred miler, or do those things stay fairly consistent regardless? So those stay fairly consistent. I'm, I'm fairly low the majority of the time. Um, even like on my high intensity training weeks, I'm still like getting maybe a hundred grams of carbohydrates at the most. Um, and like my, my coach, Jeff, he's, he's always trying to get me to get closer to 150 and it's just, it's just too hard for me. And I, I don't like it. (laughs) So I'm I'm typically lower for the most part. Um, but yeah, I, I typically do from what I understand, what you do, what Jeff does. Um, I'm not sure what you do, Michelle, but you know, 10 days before a race, I'll go very, very strict 30 to 50 grams. Um, get used to being into steady state of ketosis for a few days before the race. And then <clears throat> up my glycogen a little bit, the two days before the race, have some more fruits and sweet potatoes. Um, so from that aspect, I'm pretty similar for, for all of my races, regardless of the distance. Um, the only difference though, is that <clears throat> like during the race, like a 200 mile versus a 50 mile, it's like my, my carb intake is a lot lower for a 200 mile race per hour than it would be for a 50 mile race. So like I, I'm probably only getting 25 grams or so of carbohydrates per hour in a 200 mile race. Um, and then a 50 mile race, I'm probably getting almost double that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's about double, um, for a 50 than it is for a 200. And that's pretty consistently for my races. Yeah. And that makes sense. I think like when you get, it sounds funny to say down to a 50 mile race, <laughs> like you're going to be able to push up to and past your aerobic threshold. So even someone who is going to be very, very fat adapted and no one's going to argue that you're not, I mean, I'd love to see your fat oxidation rates. I'm sure they're off the charts. But at that intensity, you know, you may be at like a 90, 10 split or something like that of carbs to, or fats to carb metabolism, uh, you know, at your 50 mile effort. And if you're out there long enough, you can dip into your glycogen if you go no carb in that scenario. So, um, similar to the way I explain my hundred mile fueling is look, I'm going to be probably 80, 85% fat, 15, 10% carbohydrate if I don't fuel at all, like every hour I'm going to chip into my muscle glycogen, eventually it's going to get down to that point where I'm hovering at or around 40%. And that's kind of where the research that we do have shows you're going to start seeing a performance dip when you start kind of getting that low. So a little bit of carbohydrate does go a long way, even for someone as fat adapted as you on those shorter ultras, uh, where I find it really interesting is the training side of things, because Ultimately, that's what's going to get you prepared for the race itself, whether you're focusing on the mental or the physical aspects of the training process. But when you introduce some of the shorter, faster intervals, which I would say are important, they're very unspecific to race intensity. So when people try to maybe hyper-focus on that variable above and beyond everything else, they're missing, they're missing the, the, the process, the whole process. But, um, I find it interesting since I've been working with so many people in this kind of topic for the last uh, nearly 10 years, I have had a lot of opportunity to see like what has worked for folks with those short interval sections of training and what hasn't worked. And it's uh, I would say more often than not, 
that 100 to 150 gram range that you referenced, Mike, is where most people kind of find a good starting point when they're in that intense specific time of training, when they're following a lower carbohydrate diet, and they've had some background in it of say a year to two years plus. Uh, but every once in a while, you know, maybe one out of every 10 times, I will get someone who comes and they're like, you know, I'm doing the full thing with them. I'm programming their coaching. I'm working on them with their, their consultations and emails and all that stuff. And I'll be like, okay, this is the phase of training where I think your baseline is going to be like hundred to 150 grams based on your training volume, the intensity, we're going to introduce the frequency of it. And just like the space between these sessions, to me, it's like all signs point to one to 150. And then they're like, ah, I'm going to try 50. And they go and they nail some of these short intervals. And I'm just like, you know, I'm like, well, I mean, the, the, the data's on the sheet. It's like, I can't argue with it. If they're hitting the splits, we're looking for them to hit. Uh, and I just think, I mean, you know, that's maybe just an individual component. I think we see this in a lot of the studies as well, where when you actually go in and tease out the data, you know, it's not every participant had the exact same story of X percentage deficit or neutral or improvement of performance. It's usually a bit of a range. And those combined together can give you a look at what on average the population is going to experience but it's not going to necessarily tease out you as the individual. So uh, that's where I think it gets really interesting in the programming and the like essentially the end of one side of ultra marathon, where we do have very little research or any, especially when we get to the distances that you're running. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, that my body just knows that I like doing the distances that I do. Um, and that it knows that it might not need hundred and 150 carbohydrates per day to, to operate. Um, so yeah, it's very individualized. And I, I would like to point out too, that like this, the, the Bigfoot 200 that I just did, um, <clears throat> like this is the perfect example for why a low carbohydrate approach would really benefit for somebody who's doing a, a multi-day event. <clears throat> but um, the, the first day at Bigfoot 200, I, I made a rookie mistake and I forgot my electrolytes. And so I only had like a handful of salt pills that I was able to use for this whole race. Um, I typically take about one pill every 30 minutes, especially when it's hot. Um, but because I was limited, I was only taking one pill every couple hours. Um, and it really messed with my stomach. I, I wasn't able to eat really. And <clears throat> so that first day at Bigfoot, I, I, I wasn't eating a whole lot and, um, and it wasn't really too much of a problem. Like I'm sure I would have had a Bit, bit of a boost if I, if I did have some more food, but, but like, even though I wasn't eating a lot, like I just had like a consistent flow of energy and I was staying on top of my hydration. Um, and so I was able to keep going at a pretty good pace, even with that lack of calories because of my stomach hurting. So, so there's, there's just so many variables with these multi-day things that like more often than not, like if you're out there for a couple of days, you're probably going to experience some type of stomach issue at one point. And so if you're going to experience that, then it's just going to be super beneficial to be able to tap into that fat storage and just keep going, even if you're not eating. Yeah. And when you're, when we're talking 50 to 60 plus hours, the odds of just not, maybe not even a stomach issue, but just having a hiccup in this process where you're going to, you know, not get what you wanted to get and have to rely on what, what's available on, on person, which, you know, obviously when we're looking at fuel tanks, you know, body fat is part of that and you can, if you can tap into that, then you're going to be less, less logistically challenged. I would say, uh, there's a guy, Dr. Mike Nelson, who I've had on the podcast a couple of times. And he, he really explains that well, where he's like, you know, these events, like these adventure races that are multi-day 
especially the ones where self-supporting is part of the process. He's like, I just don't see why anyone would go into something like that. Not that adapted because <laughs> you're, you're like, I mean, imagine the difference between carrying like just a light pack versus a, essentially like a big pack with tons of stuff. And then hoping you're able to restock if you're allowed to do it. I think it's, I mean, obviously that's a very niche area of the sport, but it's interesting to see like these different types of contexts get introduced and then looking at the diet versus just trying to do a one size fits all type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> the Dietitian's Dilemma podcast series is made possible by our friends at S Fuels. S Fuels is both Michelle and my workout recovery and lifestyle product of choice. They don't leave our carb craving friends hanging, but make sure they stay true to their roots by boasting a wide range of low carbohydrate products to help anyone make low carb living and performance much easier. Personally, I like to lean on their S Fuels Life Mix and Revive in my morning coffee just to give me a little bit of extra fat fuel and protein to start the day. Their Life Bars I'll turn to when I need a protein packed snack on those higher energy demanding days. Their S Fuels Train product when I need a bit of extra fat for a long workout and their Race Plus to help keep liver and muscle glycogen topped off on my harder, longer efforts. You can check out their full lineup at sfuelsgolonger.com. That is S-F-U-E-L-S-G-O-L-O-N-G-E-R.com and enter promo code ZACHB5, that is all caps, Z-A-C-H-B, the number five, for 5% off your next order. Thanks for tuning in. And now back to the show. You know, I, I, you know, being relatively new to the ultra world, I had heard that, um, a pretty large percentage, I want to say it's 40 to 60% of people. And I don't know if it's their first ultra or just every ultra will actually drop out of ultras, um, because of stomach issues, because of GI issues. And like you were saying, that was kind of like how you got into the sport. And I know when I was marathon training, that was a big problem, you know, as I, I, uh, I would struggle taking in all those goos and gels and all the carbohydrates. Um, and yeah, from, from like a performance standpoint, did, I mean, did you find a difference? I mean, did you, do, did you come from any type of marathon background or did you kind of go straight into the ultras or, I mean, I guess, I guess have you noticed the difference, obviously, you know, from a GI perspective, but even just the overall energy, like how has it been different since you've been low carb? Yeah. So I, I don't have a marathon background. <clears throat> um, I grew up very overweight. <laughs> um, I, I tried football and track in high school, but I rode the bench and I came in last. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't a positive experience. Okay. I didn't start running again. And so I graduated high school in 2008 and I started running again in 2011. Um, <clears throat> and just a long story short, I ended up breaking my back, which kind of like hindered me from, from running for a little bit. But then as soon as I started to recover, I started using running to help me recover faster. Um, found out that I had a love for the longer distance because <clears throat> I, I lost my job. I got I had to drop out of college when I broke my back because I was told I'd be in bed for so long. But um, because I did recover quickly, I basically had nothing to do but run um, every single day. So that that experience is what kind of got me into the longer distance. Um, I did my yeah, so I skipped the marathons. Um, I went straight into ultras. I did my first ultra in 2013, and um, I was mid pack to front of the pack for like a lot of local races, like, um, like races that really didn't have any competition. Um, 
I didn't start seeing a performance increase um, until I went low carb. And so for me, that, that was kind of a, like, I didn't get into running to, to perform. Like I just wanted to do it to push, push myself. But once I started to see a little bit more success in my races, like getting on the podium, setting some course records, that was obviously a, a, um, a plus to, to everything. So, so yeah, like if you look at my ultra sign up, <clears throat> like I really didn't start getting on the podium or doing anything until I went low carb. And I know everybody, a lot of people ask me about my day-to-day nutrition. I'm sure people would be curious, like, what do you, <laughs> what does it look like? Like when, what do you eat? When do you run? You know, if you could walk us through kind of like a typical day. Yeah, it fluctuates so much. Um, <clears throat> I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting. And I know that um, there's data out there that might show that that's not great for an endurance athlete, especially doing it every single day. Um, at least for the amount of miles that, that we're running every day. Um, so, you know, I try to intermittent fast two to three times a week um, versus every single day, like I used to. Um, and when I do break my fast, it's usually right. So I usually run in the mornings just because I have a day-to-day job. Um, so I usually get my runs done by 9am every single day. <clears throat> and so I'll usually fast for a couple hours after that run, just to finish my fast. And then I usually break that fast with um, the majority of my carbohydrates for the day, just right then, since it's so close to my run. So for breakfast, like brunch, whatever you want to call it, I'm having usually some fruit, um, strawberries, berries, maybe an apple, but usually berries. Um, And I usually put that for like heavy whipping cream over that or something like that to get get a little bit more fat. I'll also top that off with a protein shake. And then I'll have usually every day, I usually have five to eight eggs for breakfast. Um, And then I usually go three to five hours without eating. I I typically don't snack. So for lunch, I'll usually have like some 80, 20 ground beef, just stir fried up with some onion. And then for dinner, it's usually um, a piece of steak with some green vegetables. So (laughs) It's, it's pretty, pretty typical of what you'd see with most low carb, um, individuals, just the differences. I'm getting a little bit more fruit and carbohydrates right after my run in the mornings. Yeah, that's pretty. And I imagine calorie wise, it's pretty substantial just when you with the added fats and all that stuff. Yeah. I'm probably sitting at about 35 to 4,000 calories. Did you, uh, have to do a little bit of, uh, self experimentation to decide when to put the carbohydrates you eat into your daily diet? Or was that something that you just kind of started with doing after your morning session and it just worked and you just stuck with it? No, self-experimentation. Um, I used to have my carbohydrates in the evening just because, um, you know, association, that's when I would like watch TV and hang out and used to have popcorn and candy and stuff. So, (laughs) so just like as a comfort, type thing. Like I used to have my carbohydrates in the evening when I was watching TV and winding down. But, um, I found that one, it kept me up at night and I don't know if that's because it was giving me a a spike, um, with, or or whatever, but I found that it was making me sleep a little bit less. And then just through studying and stuff, I learned that, that it's going to be more effective to have it as close to my run as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I've been doing it close to my run like this for probably a year, year and a half now. 
And I, I, I personally too, sorry to cut you off, Zach. No, no, keep going. As I say, I know that like, you know, you and Jeff and others do um, like sweet potatoes and red potatoes. And like, I've personally found that like for me, like it makes me feel bloated. It just, I, I don't like <clears throat> how I feel after I eat potatoes. So I rarely eat potatoes. The majority of my, my carbs are coming from fruits and, and vegetables. That is an interesting point. I think I've always seen a fair bit of diversity there as to what carbohydrate sources people end up preferring. And a lot of times it is like what you said, where, you know, I might say, this is what works well for me. And then they try that and like, well, why am I bloated? And then it's not <laughs> necessarily that the carbohydrate is bloating them. It's the, maybe the, the product that is packaging the carbohydrate is the, what's causing it. And then it's just about finding which one is going to work for them. And it sounds like fruit is something that works well for you. Uh, does that also guide then how you're going to introduce, if you are introducing carbohydrates into some of these longer races, or do you do fruit then as well? Yeah. My main carb source in my races are fruits. So I'll carry freeze dried fruit with me. Um, at the aid station, I have smoothies made up that my wife will give me. Um, I'll sometimes add hundred percent pure organic apple juice to my flasks and I'll drink apple juice in between aid stations. Um, yeah, fruits <clears throat> generally, even if I'm having stomach issues, I can generally tolerate fruits and, you know, it's, it's great because it's a good spike for me. There's also an interesting study that's fairly recent that came out of New Zealand, uh, in one of their performance laboratories, I believe around April, and it was looking at carbohydrate timing or just, it wasn't really even looking at carbohydrate timing. It was just looking at workout quality and they wanted to test non-fueled, so fasted going into an AM session, they wanted to test fat and protein. So like a low carb ketogenic approach, and they wanted to test moderate high carb. So just a carb and a protein source and see like, if there was any variance between those three arms of the study. And for some context, the fueled runners were doing about 300 calories of for the fat cohort, fat and protein, and for the carb cohort, carb and some protein. And then obviously the fasted was nothing. Um, and they didn't see for sessions of 60 to 90 minutes, even short interval sessions that it really mattered that much. So historically, I've always been a little more inclined when I'm working with folks to say like carbs are going to be like what you said, Mike, around the, 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 the bigger session of the day is probably the ideal time, whether that's before, during or middle is maybe a little more of a preference. Whereas after seeing that study, maybe the starting point should be after for you know, based on that, as well as just some interesting stuff with fat oxidation rates, when if you are leaving them out before, assuming you're not going to want them for the set activity level, which this study, at least from 60 to 90 minutes would indicate you wouldn't need it, uh, would be useful before, but, uh, that's been some interesting stuff. So I was just kind of curious how, how you ended up after, like if that had been something you were, were really looking into, or if it just stumbled upon it. Yeah. Mostly just stumbled upon it. <laughs> yeah it is interesting because you know in the the sports nutrition world we're we're always taught that or from the dietetics world that you need you know carbs before you need carbs during and then immediately after and it seems like you know certainly there are elite athletes that have had success doing that but for especially for the general population you know that maybe is trying to lose weight or trying to run their first run it seems like that may not be the best approach, especially if somebody's overweight, um, you know, having them have a lot of carbohydrates right before, like you were saying, Zach, like that's going to immediately stop you from burning fat. That's going to suppress fat. 
and then you're having carbohydrates during. So now you're teaching your body to be dependent on that. And then you're not burning any fat and then you're having carbohydrates right after. So now you're setting yourself up to potentially crave a lot of, so it's like, you know, it's really, I really appreciate, you know, um, you know, runners like you, Mike and all Zach, it's kind of like questioning the paradigm. Like, it doesn't make sense for more athletes to consider a low carbohydrate approach, you know, and it doesn't, even if you're not having GI issues, maybe your performance isn't going great, or maybe you're trying to lose weight, or maybe you are just trying to, um, take, take time off, um, you know, a racing time. And I've all, I've had people tell me that, well, yeah, what about a really, really hard workout? Or like, what about elite marathon runner? <laughs> it's like, maybe for like that very specific subset of the population that's, you know, running, um, sub five minute miles for 26 miles. It makes, it makes sense to use a lot of sugar glucose, but it seems like for most people it could benefit from incorporating more fat, more protein and potentially, you know, fasting before your runs. Has that been your experience as well, Zach? Yeah. I mean, especially when you get in the ultra marathon, I think like with, uh, with, with, Actually, maybe not even, maybe I'll back that up. Not even ultra marathon endurance in general. I think like we do a disservice as much as we do a service by promoting any one way of fueling that sort of thing. I think you have to be, I, here's the way I look at it. Most people are going to come into any activity, whether it's endurance, any other sport, just general health and fitness at the gym, whatever it happens to be following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. You're going to find very few people who aren't paying attention to nutrition. Let's just look at that group. Not, not people who have already discovered that they do better on low carb or vegan or whatever it happens to be just like your average person hasn't paid attention to nutrition the majority of their life, other than just going to the grocery store and basically grabbing what they presume is healthy in some cases and a lot of what's not healthy in a lot of cases. And they're going to find themselves at moderate carbohydrate. That's just the way our food environment is structured. So when it comes to like working with somebody on their fueling for a specific event, I think the move there is to let them come to you versus trying to like convince them one way or the other on anything. Uh, and that usually what, what I find happens in that type of a situation is you get a more open-minded receptive person. So, you know, maybe they said, Oh, well, I looked at the, I looked at the, the exercise nutrition research, and it was very clear about how much carbohydrates I should have. I'm going to stick with this. Great. Let's get to work on the training program. If they start having issues with their nutrition, then, you know, I'm not, they're, they're not going to look at me as someone who was like trying to force a specific issue onto them. They're going to come to me as like, like almost like a safe spot as, Hey, I've been having some issues with my carb fueling strategy. I tried training my gut and my gut said no, <laughs> uh, <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. And they know I'm not going to be like, Oh, well, I told you a year ago that that was dumb and, <laughs> you know, and, and be afraid to kind of address the, the topic at hand. And, and then I find just a lot more like not only open-mindedness, but also just like kind of a, a scenario where they're willing to try something, but they're willing to try it without like this preconceived expectation either, which I think is good because I mean, there are all sorts of other things too, like placebo effects and other variables that you're improving possibly that are coming at the expense of others that I do want them to be aware of so that they know, like when this happens, there's some reasons for that, that we can explain versus just like, you know, having no clue what's going on. And when, when I've done it that way, I've had like 
plenty of people, whether they're training for a 5k or a hundred mile or a 200 mile, or like you Mike, find themselves following low carbohydrates, some quite strict, some a little more periodized. Uh, and then I've had some that, you know, just stick with or move back to moderate high carbohydrate because they find that they've cleared up some issue that they had at some point in time. And then they were able to reinduce more carbohydrates. And that's where they found was, was jiving with their particular lifestyle. So I just like just big picture, even if we move away from sport and just look at nutrition as a whole, I think what the, the practical approach is looking at people as individuals with individual lifestyles and individual eating preferences. So giving them options to pick from, to try, so they can actually find what they prefer, what's sustainable for them, what they can stick to, what's going to just be a long-term success for them versus just, you know, having a, a good year and then not liking it anymore, or, you know, something else is going to give them a better chance to find something successful within their context. Since when we're being honest with ourselves, everyone is unique in the sense that they're, no one's lifestyle matches the other person's perfectly. The closest we can actually get to that is like an Olympic marathoner. Cause most of those folks are following a relatively similar lifestyle comparatively to the general population, which could be wildly different. I mean, to look at you, Mike, for example, like your lifestyle, if you look from day one to where you are today and mine, there'd be vast differences there. Whereas you take an Olympic marathon medalist, you take one to the next. And a lot of times there's a lot of consistency there. There's a lot of more controlled variables there. So you can tease out different things a lot easier in that population, I think. Uh, but yeah, that's, I don't know. I probably went off on a bit of a tangent. There. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe I answered your question or not. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and I want to touch a little bit, um, you know, I I know you talked about this on the last time you were on with SAC, Mike, but for people who aren't familiar, you did a hundred mile race with zero calories. Is that correct? Um, It wasn't a race. Like my own run that I put together. Yeah. Can you talk just a little bit about what you did? Because I mean, uh, the first time I heard that, I was like, that's amazing. Because once again, you know, the dogma that you need at least, uh, you know, hundred grams of carbs every 30 minutes or a goo every 30 minutes. But did you want to just show that you could, you could run without calories or what was the, what was kind of the thought behind that? Yeah, it was a mix of that. And then just not having anything to do because COVID canceled. all um, races. <laughs> so yeah, it was last year in 2020. Um, like, <clears throat> so when I started low carb, Zach and, um, Jeff Browning, have you, have you met Jeff, Michelle? I have not. I need to meet Jeff. Yeah. He's, he's great. Um, Zach and Jeff referred me to Jeff Bullock and Stephen Finney. And I remember seeing a couple of their, um, like videos on YouTube talk about how like every single person, even the skinniest athlete has enough fat to last them for a few days. If they like purely had to go into starvation mode and live off of their fat storage. And so like, I always wondered what that correlated to in an athletic state. So like, like how far would one be able to go relying on their fat storage if they were being physically active and running, for example. Um, and so between that and then just doing a lot of my long runs fasted, just because like, I like, you know, if you're, if you're having stomach issues, like in my mind, one of the best ways to resolve that was just to not eat when you're running. <laughs> so like I was doing a lot of my long runs fasted and you know, with COVID canceling races and then hearing, like always having that question in my head, how far I could go in a fasted state. I finally just put a hundred mile route together here in the the city that I live in and, and, um, went out just to see if I could do it without eating any calories. 
Um, so yeah, it was just to see if I could do it. Um, the, the thing though, that I, that I took from it that has really helped me with my races is even though I, <clears throat> let me try and figure out how I'm going to say this. <clears throat> so like I, th- there's like a, a stigma out there that you need like a certain amount of calories per hour, whether you're low carb, whether you're high carb, like it's a general accepted philosophy that you need some calories every hour. And then it's like pretty individualized on how many calories you should take per hour. But I found that at a lot of my races, like I would look down on my watch and I'd be like, Oh no, it's been two hours since I last ate. Like I might've been feeling good, but I, I forced myself to eat because I, I was like kind of in fear that something would happen if I didn't eat, even though I didn't feel like I needed to eat, if that makes sense. And so doing this, like, you know, I'm never going to do a race on zero calories that that's um, going to take away an edge from any athlete. If you're going to try to do it without calories, but it just gave me the confidence that I needed to just, just trust my body, like eat when I feel like I need to eat. And if I don't need to eat, then don't worry about it and just <clears throat> kind of rely on that. And so, so yeah, it was just, it was a good experience to show me that I can trust my body a little bit more that I can go quite a ways on zero calories and that I'm not going to bonk from it. If I'm, if I'm being consistent with my water and my electrolytes. Um, so yeah, the, no issues. Um, I, the only thing I noticed is around mile 70, I could, I couldn't tap into a higher gear, um, that I would have been able to tap into if I had some carbohydrate or some calories. Um, I didn't necessarily bonk, but I just couldn't like take it up a notch and run faster where I feel like I could have, if I had some calories. Your body was defending what was left quite well, I would imagine at that point. (laughs) I think there's a lot of things that I find interesting about that experiment that you did, Mike. And one of them is just like what you mentioned about kind of putting yourself in a position for future races that I would imagine are higher stake for you than than this project to teach you that like you don't need to burn mental energy with trivial things that don't actually matter. So like that scenario you described, if you take your average ultra runner and you put them in a position where they need to go two hours without fueling, they're not only going to go two hours without fueling, they're going to probably stress about that. They're going to have a lot of anxiety. They are going to burn mental energy as well as physical energy through that experience. And I definitely am a firm believer in ultra marathon that you have a mental energy bank as much as you do a physical energy bank and you have to account for that. And if you spend that mental currency properly over the course of whatever distance you're running, you're going to have a much better end result than if you're, you know, like uncontrollably spending that mental energy early on through like anxiety and unforced worries and fixating on mistakes and things like that, or the big ones that usually stick out. But for you, it's like, you learned that you get in that situation, a race, you can trust yourself. You can trust your approach. You can trust what your body's going to be able to do in that context. And it probably doesn't bother you that much. So you're saving mental energy too, as well as, you know, getting to the physical aspect of what you're doing. Yeah. And to add to that, like, <clears throat> you know, a hundred mile plus distances, I feel that ultra marathoners, like one of the main sources of their success is their ability to just zone out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And if you're not able to zone out because you're worried about stuff, then, you know, yeah, like you said, like you're wasting mental energy, you're not zoning out, you're realizing how far it is that you're going to run and how long it is you're going to be out there. Um, so yeah, there's no need to, to waste your mental energy on that kind of stuff.
Yeah, Mike, you strike me as the type of guy who's not wasting too much mental energy. You seem pretty cool and calm about <laughs> all this stuff, which maybe is why it's you're amazing. so good. <laughs> I'm too laid back, man. Like <laughs> the Colorado trail that I did last year, um, this just shows how like little mental, like maybe this is why I do okay at these distances, um, but maybe I could do better if I put a little bit more mental prep into things. But like at the Colorado trail, like um, I, I don't know if you are familiar with the Colorado trail, Michelle, um, mm-hmm. or not, yeah. it's a, it's a route from Durango to Denver. It's just shy of 500 miles and it goes, your, your gate, your gain, your elevation gains about 90,000 feet. So it, it's a lot of up and a lot of down. <laughs> um, but I, I went there last year and I did the whole Colorado trail. And when I got through the San Juan mountain range, which was roughly, mile zero to mile 100 120 um and for those who don't know the san juan mountain range like they're they're pretty amazing mountains and like consistently you're at about twelve thousand feet um in those mountains it's it's very high up and i remember when i got out of the san juans i told my pacer like like oh they're gone we're done like we can finally drop down and I can just coast and just hang out around 7,000 feet for the rest of the way. And my pacer, like, he said, like, are you joking? I said, no, why? He's like, you do know that the majority of the Colorado trail is about 10,000 feet. Right. <laughs> and I had no idea. <laughs> like I did not do any prep. Like I, I learned that the Colorado trail was that high up when I was out trying to do it. <laughs> so so I need to put a little bit more prep into the things that I do or else it might really affect me in a negative way. <laughs> well, the, you, you, you probably had some ignorance as bliss going on there, I would say. And uh, obviously, maybe that particular example is is a little more ignorance than you typically want going into a project like that. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the way I've been kind of looking at stuff like that, and I'd be interested in your take on this, Mike, since you actually have experience, unlike myself with that type of thing is is there is essentially an endless list of things you could worry about and try to account for. So at the end of the day, you have to kind of figure out, well, what are the ones that, what are the things I can't screw up? Like I can't screw up the RV. I can't screw up, you know, certain things that are just going to leave you high and dry or in the hospital or whatever. Uh, So making sure you have those dialed in are great. But if you find yourself trying to nitpick every last step of a project, that's that long. And that, that arduous is like, you're going to end up kind of going back to what I talked about before anxiety and overthinking things and burning a lot of that mental energy where, where that's where I think like you're kind of calm laid back nature is going to help with, cause you're just not going to be bothered by those things. And when they do happen, you accept them as things like, okay, well, this is one of millions of things that could have happened that I didn't expect my responsibility is managing that now that it happened versus trying to account for all of those million little things beforehand and try to avoid them altogether. Is that something, is that kind of how you see that? Yeah. And I know that, I know that we got to wrap up here real quick, so I'll be fast, but <clears throat> the biggest lesson that I learned aside from how beneficial low carb is for me um, in 2019, I did Western States um, just like a month and a half before I did the triple crown. I used to be like very, particular and very nitpicky with my, my running. So like I'd create split charts, like my A goal, my B goal, my C goal. And these are the times I should be into this aid station. And these are my B goal for times I should be into the aid station. And I found at Western States that like, even though like I got a little bit off from my splits, 
And even though it was only a little bit, like I started to like really think about that. And it really started to mess with me where I just started to like develop a once the point kind of attitude. And I slowed down and finished like quite a bit slower than I would have if I just like didn't have that stuff to worry about. And so when I went into Bigfoot a month and a half later, I didn't create any split charts. I told my pacers, my crew, like, don't tell me how fast I'm going. Don't tell me how close I am the first, second, third, wherever I am. Don't tell me the overall time that I'm on pace to finish in. I just want to run according to how I'm feeling. And so if there was a section where I felt like crap, I just slowed down. I just accepted it. If there was a section where I felt like I could go a little bit faster then I upped my speed a little bit. And I ended up like, like really improving. Like I improved my time at that Bigfoot race by 20 hours versus the, the 2017 time. So, so I learned pretty quickly <clears throat> between those two races that I do a lot better if I'm not um, planning too much and just, just running according to how I feel. Awesome. And we can be a little more relaxed. My, my call that was going to give us a hard stop just got moved to next week. So uh, <laughs> feel free to get long winded now, if you want. <laughs> well, we- actually, I want to point out how, you know, um, especially coming from running marathons and com- trying to be competitive in the marathon, it does seem that, you know, it, and I'm sure it's like this for men as well, but for women, I mean, it can be, you know, we're planning down to the, the same thing, the exact second, you know, always looking at your watch, what pace am I on? You know, kind of like you were talking about Mike, like we're worrying about calories. Oh no, it's been 45 minutes. Should I, you know, getting kind of freaking out about that. So it's, it's really, I don't know, kind of refreshing for me to hear both you, Zach and Mike talk about, um, how important it is, especially as you get into the longer distances to, um, not, not overly worry about every single detail, not just because like one, it's not useful and not helpful, but two, like you could act, you're actually setting yourself back. Like you're using mental energy. Um, Mike, you're saying like, it literally psyched you out, you think in Western States. So, and I find that that's, that's really interesting. That's something that I'll even, you know, as a newer ultra runner, I'll take away from this. Some of it. Go ahead, ahead, Mike. I was just, I was going to say some of it, I think is like matching the plan with the personality. So like I've had clients in the past who are quite a bit different than you, Mike, or myself, where they really get a lot of peace of mind of having everything kind of laid out and like an order of operations and like a list of, I want to hit this split at this aid station. And I've seen it work like where it usually works though, is you have to be, that person has to be very open to being the, the, the hurdle for them to get over, I should say is when one, cause something's going to go different, right? There's no way around that. It's a hundred miles from your case, 200 plus, And like something's gonna happen off plan. So if I get a person who's very detailed like that, who wants to have like this aid station at one thirty-two and 28 seconds in this aid station, that's great. But then you have to be able to say like, okay, this aid station to that aid station, I hit the plan. Great. Let's go to the next one. And then when you hit one that doesn't, when they get to that next one, ignore that one and look at what the next step is and just start tackling that chunk and not be fixating on what didn't go right. So as long as they're okay, knowing going in, like, all right, I got this, I have these details and that's going to let me fall asleep the night before. Cause I know I have it detailed and laid out. They have to be comfortable with, uh, when something does happen and getting back on course. And I mean, I've seen Jim Walmsley do a pretty good job of that where he'll sit there and he'll, he'll look at, well, here's where I want to hit from this aid station to this aid stage is my target. And, you know, inevitably a day of he'll get there either a couple minutes ahead or a couple minutes behind what he had projected he would do. And, you know, he's able to just adjust from there and say, okay, 
that one's behind me now. Now I got to look at what's my next aid station gap in time expectation, time to dial that one in and think and focus on that, that personality, you know, that's, that's great. But, uh, that's, that's part of the fun with the, with the ultra marathon stuff is working with that. Cause that we do have a, a pretty wide range of personalities in this sport. I mean. <laughs> so I'm curious, like those people, do they, if they come into an aid station five minutes behind, do they try to make up that five minutes or do they, do they just adjust all the other times five minutes back? Yeah, that I would see the way I've seen that strategy work well is you don't look at like a specific race time when you're doing it that way. You look at like from this aid station, this station is how long it should take me. So if you're five minutes behind on one, you still stick with your your previous estimation for the next one because you have to account mm-hmm. for like uncertainties, like especially at, let's take a course like Western States, you might have a bunch of snow up in the high country or it might be bone dry. So like it might be slower in that section than you expected one year to the next. Uh, I think what you would do in that situation, if you're kind of, cause, cause you're right, Mike, if you're, cha- if you're, ch- if you're someone like Jim and you're chasing a time uh, you know, for him, it's usually a low 14 of some sorts. And it's uh, he's going to want to make that up if he wants to achieve that a goal still. I think what you'd probably do in that situation is, you'd wait to try to make it up. You wouldn't necessarily say, I got to get this all back in the next aid station. You'd get first back on track. And then maybe when you get to like the end stages of the race, like you get past 70 miles and you can start taking a few more risks because you can account for how much energy you actually have left a little bit better Then start saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to trim a couple minutes off this aid station and a couple minutes off that one and a couple minutes off that one and try to catch back up that's the way I would do it. Um, I'm sure there's people who would probably go a different route than that though. Yeah, that makes sense. It goes to show just though how individualized we all are. Cause that just like even thinking about that stresses me out. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's probably just not a great strategy as you learn, not a great strategy for you. And, and you know, another way to look at it too, especially on a course like Western where you're going to have a range of parts of that course that are have more heavily in your strength category. And then ones that are more heavily in your weakness category, because the unique thing about that course is if you optimally prepare for the high country that may come at the expense of say that end stage where you're running along the American river, or if you optimally prepare for the canyons that might come at the expense of a different area of the course. So the other way I'd maybe look at that would be, Oh, I'm strong from like forest Hill down to the river. So if I'm going to try to make up this five minutes, I'm going to make it up there. Cause then I'm leaning on yeah. something I'm strong at versus I'm going to make it up in the canyons, which is my weakest spot where I'm more likely to overreach and like give back two minutes for everyone. I make up later in the race. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Michelle, you have any other, uh, training or dietary questions for Mike? Oh, I feel like I could just chat with Mike. We'll have to talk more offline. This is, this is fascinating for me. Um, but yeah, no, I'm good. Thank you. Cool. Um, Mike, uh, where can folks find you if they want to check out your coaching services or what you're up to on website, social media, and that sort of stuff? Yeah, just on social media, the low carb runner, and then um, low carb dash runner.com is my website for coaching. Awesome. And do you coach folks that are mostly just ultra marathon stuff? Or what does your coaching services look like? Yeah, it's mostly ultra marathoners, um, people who are interested in the 200 mile distances. Um, I'd probably say half the people I speak to are interested in low carb approach, but <clears throat> I 
generally refer those people to to you or Zach or sorry, you or Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jeff and I are thankful for that, obviously, but (laughs) I would imagine anyone listening to this who's got their eyes on a 200 miler would uh, could do do far worse than reaching out to you, Mike, with all your experience. And my guess is if they had questions about any of the aspects that come come as a challenge or of a structure around how to maybe put together a program for something like that, you'd, you'd be the guy with the most experience that I can think of. So uh, those of you who are looking to uh, challenge yourself with that sort of stuff, uh, Mike comes highly recommended from, from me and the podcast. So <laughs> uh, awesome. And Michelle, where can folks find you? Yeah. So um, my website, the dietitians dilemma.net. Um, the book is on Amazon. We have a paperback at Kindle and now the audio version is up. And on social media, Instagram at run, eat, meet, repeat. And on Twitter at Michelle Hearn, RD. Awesome. And correct me if I'm wrong, Michelle, but uh, Dietitian Zelma is now available in uh, audio. Yeah. Yeah. Right? It's up on, um, on Amazon. If you have an audible membership, you can get it. You can download it for free. And that helps me out a lot. I appreciate that. Um, if not, you can, you can just buy it outright for under 20 bucks on the audio version. And it's also on iTunes. Very cool. Those folks putting in three to five hour training sessions at a zone two <laughs> or lower effort are going to be downloading the audio version. Yes, I can tell it, it. <laughs> it, yeah. And, and if you do download it, you know, I really appreciate if anybody takes the time to review that helps me out a lot and feel free to just send me a message. Let me know what you think. I love hearing from people. Awesome. Well, thanks to the both of you for uh, taking part of uh, this chapter, I should say, of the Dietitian's Dilemma series. Uh, It was a lot of fun, Michelle, having you alongside for this. And Mike, obviously, you're always welcome on the podcast, series or no series, if you want to chat about any of the things you're up to. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.